On Fairway Roland, Joe House and Nathan Hubbard are joined by a rotating cast of Ringer and Golf World personalities to break down the latest in golf headlines and news. They also delve into the world of golf gambling. Check out Fairway Roland on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's New York, New York, presented by FanDuel. The MLB season is in full swing and you can step up to the plate with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub, filtered by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, bet the live same-game parlays for every MLB game and track your game and bets live with box scores and play-by-play. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of Major League Baseball. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 100 Gambler or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Alrighty, let's roll, baby. Welcome in. It is a early Wednesday edition of New York, New York with yours truly, J.J. Jansky-Stremski. We are right here on the Ringer Podcast Network, and I felt like I just watched a game from the first half of the 2021 New York Yankees season. The Yankees leave a ton of runners on base. They grab into a boatload of double plays. They squander a bunch of opportunities to have a chance to knock a starter out right out of the gate, and they're unable to do so, and they have now lost their fourth consecutive game. After winning 13 straight, you kind of had a feeling sooner or later that regression to the mean was inevitable. Well, you have now gotten that from the New York Yankees, losing the last two in Oakland, losing these two games at Anaheim. Here are the concerns after this game Tuesday night, twofold. Number one, Jamison Tyon, who really in many ways saved the Yankees' bacon when starters were out, when starters had COVID. He was somebody you could rely on. But remember, this is a guy who hasn't pitched in two years. So are we now reaching a point with Jamison Tyon where fatigue is starting to set in and, dare I say, he's starting to lose it a little bit? You saw that last night with Kluber in his first start. You saw it with Tyon Tuesday night. That's a little bit alarming if I'm Aaron Boone and the New York Yankees. That is something I am watching moving forward. Maybe Luis Seal's got to be back up here and get a start to give Jamison Tyon a little bit of a blow. So that's something I circled right out of the gate. The other thing that I found concerning from a Yankee standpoint, the amount of double plays. I mean, holy moly, how many double plays are you going to hit in for goodness sakes? And I heard this stat. Credit the Yes broadcaster, we're all over it. And I jotted it down as soon as I heard it. I never jot anything down when I watch a game. This is something I actually jotted down on my phone because I thought it was worthwhile. In the Yankees' 13-game winning streak, the team grounded into four double plays. They grounded into five double plays 
Tuesday night against the Angels. Got elevate baseball. And I'm not going to kill Aaron Boone for sending up Luke Voigt in the top half of the eighth inning. It's not a move I would have made. And I, I saw that I sent shockwaves throughout Twitter. Oh, JJ, you don't send a tweet after the fact. I got the screenshots. You want me to send the screenshots? And I did that in a few cases. I could show you some of the text conversations I'm having. And I'll let Twitter and, you know, the IRS and national security get insight on what I'm saying day in and day out. I'm more than happy to do so. I'm more than happy to share. I would have let Rugi hit. I know he's been terrible over the last month, but he's had so many big hits for the Yankees. I would have let him hit in the top half of the eighth inning, and they were not getting to Iglesias. Iglesias is one of the best closers in all baseball, and he has made the Yankees look stupid back-to-back nights. So the Yankees have now lost four straight. They're still in great shape to make the postseason. However, I'm calling it. And I've been calling it for a while, but I kind of feel like I'm, you know, one of these news networks on election night. You know, some news networks are a little gun-shy, a little skittish about calling a particular state. Well, we're not going to be skittish here in this prediction. The American League East is over. Let's call it like it is. The Yankees are now eight games back of the Tampa Bay Rays, and it is September the 1st. September the 1st, and they're eight games back, and you only got three head-to-head? Unless you are delusional, unless you are a sucker, the Yankees are going to be playing in the wild card game. Now, with everything going on with the Red Sox, they got some major, major problems between the way they're playing, COVID outbreak, no bueno. And they've gotten absolutely whooped by Tampa back-to-back days. The Yankees are going to be playing either Boston or Oakland in that wild card game. I think it's imperative that the game is at Yankee Stadium. And I think it's imperative that they have Garrett Cole on full rest. Now, is that going to hurt you down the road against Tampa where you only got Cole once in the series? You want to throw him on regular rest? It's in game four? Yes. Anything but ideal. But considering the Yankees were a game over 500 on, what, July the 5th or July the 4th, you kind of got to take that wild card and run with it. That's basically what I'm doing from a fan standpoint. So a couple of lousy games after a bunch of really good, feel-good games. Inevitable. That's the way baseball works over 162 games. But to quote the Yankee manager from, I think, his moment of glory in the three-plus, four years he's been on, you know, the Yankee payroll, let's tighten that shit up. That would be my advice to the New York Yankees. Take your manager's advice and tighten that shit up. Now, you have all that going on with the Yankees. Division over. Focus on getting that first wild card. And then you had the aftermath of thumbs down from a couple of days ago. And I knew this was going to happen. The outroar, the outrage from fans, from people like myself, to to everybody out there. I knew we were going to hear some sort of apology from both Francisco Lindor and Javier Baez. And let's make something perfectly clear. We roasted Lindor the other day. Roasted him. Baez got the attention. Baez was the easy target to go after. The bigger concern for the mess is Lindor, who's here for the next nine or ten years, and this element of can he handle, will he be able to deal with the bright lights of New York City. So you get the apology at the U.S. Open. You get the apology from Lindor before the game. Baez tweets something out. I'm sure they heard from Cohen. I'm sure they heard from Alderson. Too little too late as far as I'm concerned. But in order for the Mets and these players to get back in the good graces of 
the folks listening to this podcast and anybody who roots for the orange and blue, you got to play better. Bottom line, point blank, you got to put up. You got to play better. So they have this doubleheader against the Marlins. And for eight innings of the first game, the Mets could not have looked any more lifeless. They left a ton of guys on base. They squandered a bunch of chances. They're down four runs in the bottom half of the ninth inning. They had a couple of really good at-bats, and sure enough, who comes up? Javi Baez. And I'm thinking, oh boy, this is going to be either Javi Baez's moment of glory, or it is going to be Javi Baez's moment of just absolute futility. Gets an infield single, but then scores the winning run. Conforto with a great piece of hitting, and credit Conforto because he had a monster, monster doubleheader against the Marlins. Better late than never for a guy who's done absolutely nothing all year. Neither here nor there. That base hit, booted by the outfielder, Baez busting his butt, coming around second, coming around third, and scoring the go-ahead run. The Mets then proceed to win the game in the nightcap of the double dip. As we said, big game for Michael Conforto. And the Mets have won a couple of games. They've now won four of their last five. What are they doing? They're taking advantage of this underbelly that we've talked about now for a while when it comes to the schedule. We talked about the Mets' schedule and said, look, they have all these games with the Giants and the Dodgers. Well, they fell flat on their face and they embarrassed themselves when they played those two particular teams. But can the Marlins and Nationals now sucker you back in to a point where these September games mean something? That's what you're trying to figure out. Well, They've won a couple of games here. I am not looking at game one of the doubleheader, which is probably the Mets' best win of the year. It's definitely a candidate within the top three for win of the year. What it means, ask me in two weeks. Ask me in three weeks. The narrative and the notion that I am now proclaiming the Mets are going to go run and win uh, 10 out of 12 and get themselves within three or two games of the Braves and get ahead of the Philadelphia Phillies? Let me see that first. Go keep winning games, and then come talk to me. Because the reality is, and I know Gary Cohen was all sorts of giddy, turning thumbs down to thumbs up, or whatever the call was. Gary was in his glory. I mean, you saw him after the game. He's fist bumping. He's going nuts. And listen, that broadcast booth is phenomenal. Because they dissected, all three of them, the issues and the elements that are in play with the psyche and the fabric of the modern-day player not getting hit in the face from managerial types the way they once did, not getting the same sort of scrutiny in your face, in person, that you would get from all the reporters in this COVID world that we live in. And the guys basically tried to draw up some sort of a conclusion to why guys would act and give you stunts like the one we saw the other day which was despicable, and by no means were those guys trying to, you know, make a case that it's the right course of action and something they should have been saying or doing. They, they didn't make that case at all. They just kind of, in many ways, went through the psychology of it. It was interesting. Check it out on Twitter. I'm sure SMY or somebody has it up. But, I mean, Gary's going nuts. The team's two games under 500. So I, I'm not waving met pom-poms that all of a sudden met her back. <laughs> not, not yet, folks. Not yet. They're going to do enough, I think, to keep us engaged. But the idea that they're back, let's, let's call the Jets on that. And before we hit Paul Waduka, 
One note, and it was big news in the NFL. Cam Newton, say it ain't so. Cam out, Mac Jones in. I don't know if anybody saw the Instagram back and forth. I don't know if it was on Instagram or Twitter. It's basically a picture of ripped Cam Newton, not an ounce of fat on his body, looking like a physical specimen. I don't know where they got this picture. And then they got the dope boy, Mac Jones, who basically looks like, in, in this one picture, like he's a 45-year-old dude who's got like five kids and is drinking a 12-pack of Budweiser every single day. I mean, he's got the gut out. He's got, he's got a little bit of man boobs working. He's got the cigar in his mouth. And it's like, this guy's going to be the quarterback in the New England Patriots? With the way Mac Jones was slinging the ball, who the hell cares what kind of dad bod he's got going on? He was impressive throughout this training camp. You got a lot of people within the NFL saying he's the most game-ready of the rookie quarterbacks, period. That's even including Trevor Lawrence, maybe, because of his situation in Jacksonville. It makes sense for New England to make the move to Mac Jones. Now, I will tell you this. From a week one standpoint, my beloved Dolphins, they struggle mightily with running quarterbacks. Cam Newton gave him fits last year. Couldn't throw the ball, but he gave him fits. I, for one, am intrigued to see what Xavier Howard and company are going to do. And the odds, you have to wait and see when we have Jared Smith on a little bit later on in the show, what that means, the idea of Mac Jones coming to New England and how that changes things amongst win total, AFCs, playoffs, all that sort of stuff. Good move, I think, overall for the Patriots. Maybe some early growing pains, though, right out of the gate. All right, we got a loaded show. Jared Smith's going to join us in a little bit with all the NFL stuff. But we're going to welcome in a guy who knows a thing or two about getting booed in New York. Getting in New York, played on, I think, the best Met team outside of 86 and 86. When I think best Met team of my lifetime, it's not the 2000 Mets. It's not the 2015 Mets, even though both of those teams went to the World Series. It's the 2006 Mets. Most wins in baseball. Made it to Game 7 of the NLCS. We know what happened. Yada Yamalena. Aaron Heilman, Adam Wainwright, Carlos Beltran. But this guy is rather opinionated. He loves the ponies. He loves a good time. Paul Aduka. He's going to join us next. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. So a whole lot of craziness, a whole lot of drama going on with the Mets. Francisco Lindor, Javi Baez, Kevin Pillar, thumbs down galore. I think the fans are basically giving you a thumbs down with the way you've been playing over the last couple of weeks. So let's welcome in a guy who knows a thing or two actually about winning games in a Met uniform. He was a part of a team that won a division title. 
I think he was a part of the best Met team of the last, I don't know, 25, 30 years since 86. I think they were better in 2000, and I think they were better in the 2015 team. Let's welcome in the former catcher, our buddy Paul Aduka. What's up, Paul? How are you doing, JJ? I'm doing well. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, just chilling in Saratoga Springs right now in the serenity of the Adirondacks, man. Well, that's a nice place to be, and we'll get to the ponies yeah. in a minute. That, how did that come about, by the way, Paul? Like your passion for horse racing, getting into the wagering element of it. How did that become a thing for you? Was that something that was always in you or kind of developed after your playing career? Um, it was always like a passion of mine. I, I was always going to the racetrack when I was a kid. Uh, nine, 10, 11 years old. My dad used to cut me out of class. Uh, so sorry, mom, rest in peace. Um, but, uh, yeah. And I learned the vernacular, you know, it's a completely different vernacular, uh, of horse racing. So when I got out of baseball, um, I was asked, uh, by, a, uh, by TVG to, Hey, step on the set and see what, what you got. And they liked what they saw. And in the transition uh, was something I never happened. And now 12 years later, I've been in the industry doing, um, um, horse racing. And I, I, I still love the sport. Still love talking about it. Um, baseball, obviously, uh, my other passion, but outside of baseball, it's always been horse racing. Okay, Paul, now talk me through this. You're a teammate of Francisco Lindor, Javier Baez, and Kevin Pillar, and your team's struggling. You basically see a 15-game turnaround in the standings, which is hard to do. It's hard to believe. They were comfortably ahead in the NL East. They flushed that right down the toilet. Now the Braves comfortably ahead doing their thing. You see guys doing a thumbs down. Are you on board with that? Are you like cursing them out to the high heavens? Like if you didn't know this was going down and you didn't have these conversations and the game's going on, are you like, hey, what the blank is going on there? Talk me through what you'd be feeling if you saw that on Sunday. Well, if I'm in the locker room, it would be shut down. I mean, immediately by somebody in there that's got to have a a presence. Um, so, you know, when I played on the 2016, you had a guy like Reyes, you had a guy like Wright, you had a guy like Sean Green, you had a guy like Carlos Delgado, you got a guy like Carlos Beltran. All five of those guys could carry you for a week. So all five of those guys had a voice that you could listen to. Um, I don't think the Mets have a guy in that clubhouse. You sign a kid for $300 million and he's hitting 220. Hard for him to be the man in the clubhouse demanding things and telling people what to do. Um, Jacob obviously is their leader. Um, and when he went down, I think that took a ton of steam out of him, JJ. Because I remember when I played for the, for the Dodgers, you know, we had Kevin Brown. And as a team, when you have a guy like that, you always tell yourself, okay, we're going to at least win one game this week. We're not going to have a losing streak. Kevin's going to throw a great game. We're going to win that game. We have that confidence. And I think the Mets had that confidence, obviously, with Jacob. And then when Jacob went down, um, I don't think they've been the same. Um, but the other part about it is you have to have somebody step up and say, what the hell are you guys doing? The, the fans pay your salary. That's just the bottom line. And for, and for guys to do what they're doing, again, they're hitting 224. They're not hitting 324. 
Not only that, you're the worst, basically, offensive team in baseball when you had all these expectations, you had all these standards. I thought the Mets were going to be one of the better mm-hmm. offensive teams, Paul, in all baseball. So basically, you're going to spit back in my face with the performance you're giving me. And you know this, dude. It's New York City. The fans are undefeated here. They are going to mm-hmm. be a part of the fabric long after you are gone. And, you know, a guy like Baez, I'm not concerned about because he's not going to be here long term. It is what it is with him. Lindor would scare the crap out of me because he's a guy who's a star player in Cleveland. He's having a miserable season. He's here for the next 10 years. You know this. There's a certain makeup and fabric you got to have if you're going to play in New York City. And I thought Lindor had it. I thought he was a slam dunk when they brought him in the offseason. Paul, I see this nonsense going on. I'd be worried about that. Very worried. Yeah, I'd be very worried. Some guys are made to to play in New York, you're 100% right. I, when I got traded from the Marlins, I went from four people in my locker to 40 people at my locker at the end of the games when you get to New York City. And it's just the bottom line is, is I I don't understand the explanation behind that booing makes me nervous. I, I got booed at every ballpark. I got booed when I was a Dodger. I got booed um, when I was a Marlin. Um, in 2007, I think a lot of people forget the Mets absolutely collapsed. I was part of that collapse. We had a seven-game lead on the Phillies. We got booed mercifully, and we deserved it, JJ. That's part of the game. The, the Mets fans are always on the back page. Doesn't matter how good they are. The Yankees are a front page. The Mets are on the back page. Even in 06, finally, when we made it almost to the World Series, we started becoming a front-page team. But the Yankees were a front-page team that whole year. So we were, so we were better than them in 2006 and 2007. That's life. That's New York City. It's the same thing as in LA. Dodgers are on the front page. The Angels are on the back page. So that complex with the Met fans is we're sort of the underdog and they've gone through the suffering. And if you don't know that going to be a Mets player, then get off the field. It's just the bottom line. The booze come with it. What I tweeted out was 100% right. We set a Met record, and I'll never forget it, on the road. And we either went 10-0 and and 9-1. We came back and got blown out and got booed off the field. And I laughed. I left my balls off. I thought it was the funniest thing ever because I was like, this is New York. They demand perfection all the time. They want to win. Somebody paid $250 to bring their family to the dang game, to, and, and they ordered the food and this and that, while millionaires are on the field. And if you get blown out, you should get booed. And if you're hitting 224, how could you in the world be mocking the fans? I'd be hiding in a corner, JJ. I don't blame you for that. Now, talk me through 2006. Beltron went through a real tough year before you got there in 05. Signed a big contract. Didn't have great numbers. You're all part of the team in 06, and everybody's humming. Everybody's rocking. Beltran has a great year. There was a moment, and I forgot about this, but it was brought back in my memory with all this crap that's going on, where the fans asked for a curtain call, and Carlos Beltran didn't want to go out of the dugout. Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was a guy like Julio Franco a part of the you know fabric and talking to Beltran and saying, hey, dude, you know, this is something as mad as you may be, as ticked off as you may be. This is a battle you're not going to win. Like, were there veteran guys on that team trying to basically tell Carlos, hey, guess what? You're not going to win this fight? Well, we had so many veterans on that team. Everybody policed everybody. You got to understand, we had Tommy Glavin. We had Pedro. 
We had Billy Wagner. Um, we had so many veterans on that team that were outspoken. You know, Wagner would put you in your place um, in a heartbeat. Um, I remember that. And, you know, as a team, I, I remember a couple guys that pulled them aside. I want to say it was Delgado. Another part about it a lot of people didn't, didn't ever realize was Carlos Delgado didn't stand for the national anthem for a lot of times. And I questioned him. And then he sat me down and he, he gave me his explanation. He always used to sit in the clubhouse. Now, he didn't make it a spectacle and sit outside, but he stayed in the clubhouse during the national anthem. Um, it, it's had something to do with the Puerto Rican government um, that he did not like. Uh, it was with the American government. So that was his explanation towards me. And I... I had, I knew nothing about it, JJ. I had no right to tell somebody what to do. So he would be in the clubhouse. So my point of view about being a good clubhouse player or, or a teammate is, listen to me, you don't have to take the guy out to dinner or bring him Chick-fil-A every day, okay? He doesn't have to be my friend, okay? But when we're on the baseball field, he has to be my friend and I want to win baseball games. And I don't give a care how big of an SLB the guy is if he's winning me baseball games, he's my friend. And I think that's where the fabric of the game has changed. All these kids want to be friends. All these kids want to talk to the other team and, and this and that. They, they want to do this. Baez and, and, and Lindor, let's change positions. Let's do this. Let's do that. Um, messing around too much, a little bit. Not. What ends up happening is when all that goes well in New York City, it's great. But when it doesn't go well in New York City, you're seeing what's happening. How much of a problem do you think it is for the Mets to have something like this going on? You mentioned the lack of veteran leaders. I think that's totally fair and justified. How much of a role does a manager or a general manager play in this to like well, support that sort of culture? Like The idea of Rojas saying he had no idea about this stuff going on. Paul, I see that crap going on and it's my team. I'm like, well, what in God's name is this, dude? Well, I mean... I mean, Louis caught in a tough spot, but the, but the issue is, is Louis got to be the guy on the stand, not Sandy Alderson putting out a statement. I mean, Louis got to be on the stand and said, "Listen, uh, I'm going to have a clubhouse meeting and, and address this myself." It can't be Sandy. You, you, you hire Sandy, and people hire other people to do jobs. So if you're the manager, then you're supposed to manage your players. So the manager should be the one standing on the podium making the statement. So um, it's almost like Louis invisible in this whole thing. And, and him not saying that he is not knowing what's going on. I not going to blame him because he's backing his players. And as a, as a manager, right or wrong, um, the best manager I ever had were right or wrong. I'm going to back you. If you're wrong, you're paying my fine. I remember I, Davey Johnson was one of the best because he used to say all the time, right or wrong, I'll fight for you. Now, when we go back into the, the dugout and you got thrown out of the game, and it was a strike, you're paying for my fine. And, you know, so, you know, you liked managers like that that would fight for you. So I think Louie was just trying to fight for these guys to try to control it, and it got a little bit out of hand. You know what I'm saying? You are a part of the New York Mets front office. I put you in that spot. We're living in fantasy land, Paul. You blowing this team up in the offseason? I'm not blowing the team up, but I would have already released Baez. Um, and so you would have said Sayonara to Baez. After that yeah. start on Sunday, that would have been the end of it for you if you yeah, were running yeah. the team. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because the only reason why is you're out, you're out of it. I mean, you have no chance of making the playoffs now. If you re-sign Baez next year, they'll literally burn down Queens, the Mets fans. Like, let's be honest. Um, so Lindor's stuck there. Uh, I Obviously, you've seen the influence 
on each other. They, they're not a good influence on each other from what we've seen. Um, uh, I'll give Lindor credit. He's at least stood in front of a camera today when Baez tweeted it out that he was sorry. But the problem is they're going to get booed even more mercifully um, tonight and going forward. But the reason why, like you said, Baez is a rental right now. The chances of the Mets making the playoffs is not happening. So why not just say, you know what? I'm going to make a statement, release this man, and and just and just eat it because he's not going to come back. And he damaged himself for some other teams too, I would think. I'm not paying him. I'm not paying him 100 plus yeah. 150 million dollars after that sort of stunt, especially if I'm a big market sort of team. Um, you're a part of a baseball culture in the early to mid 2000s. Now you see the athlete in this day and age. You think these guys have become way too soft? Oh, uh, well, I mean, yeah, probably. I mean, I mean I'm right there with you. I, I, and you know what I think it is, Paul? I think it's a product of social media, number one. Well, uh, I, I think it's the idea that they, you know, can basically get their message yeah. out whenever they want. They've been coddled since they're 14, 15 years then old. I, no, that's it. Okay, you just hit the nail on the head there. They've been coddled. And they get caught when they get to the minor leagues. You know, when we were in the minor leagues, guys pitched six, seven innings. Now it's there. They all piggyback each other. They only throw four or five innings in the minor leagues. Then they get to the big leagues. They start at a 60 pitch count and they've been caught all the whole time. And you wonder why all these guys have injuries where when I was in the minor leagues, guys threw 180, 200 innings. Like you do this and that and you build up arm strength. So they've been coddling guys forever. And now all it is is about launch angle. You know, I looked at, Baez is yesterday. Someone put out a tweet yesterday. It was amazing. Baez has struck out 224 times in the last 162 games, and he's walked 24 times. That's embarrassing. And the idea that a strikeout is like applauded, like it's a good thing. I mean, Paul, when you were coming up, all my years of watching baseball, even when I played back in high school, you strike out, it's bad. The idea that, oh, no big deal, because, you know, over the course of 162, bop, 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 launch angle, home runs, no. Postseason games, you can't be striking out 15, 16 times in a game. It's not winning brand of ball. It's not. And you wonder, and I sit there and I wonder, I'm like, would I have been able to play in this era or whatever? I mean, I was a 286 lifetime hitter. I was over 300 a couple of times. I struck out 292 times in my whole career. Um, so, you know, I was a guy that played the two-hole. I had Reyes in front of me. I had right behind me or Beltran behind me. Sometimes I would hit in the five hole, depended. So I had to change what I needed to do. When I was in the two hole, I was moving guys over, bunting guys over, controlling the bat. When I was in the five hole, I would take my shot and, and, and try to drive and run. So you have to play the game a, a certain way where you are where you are in the lineup um, and this and that. Now it's all about shifts. It's all about that and this and that. And everybody's talking about, well, these guys now throw 105 miles an hour. I don't care how hard you throw. You could have thrown it as hard as you want. You weren't throwing it by me. And if everything else is 90-something miles an hour, it's all relevant. And your your eye will catch up to that. So the lost art, and I, I still wonder, like, would Tom Glavin even get a sniff now? Would a guy like Juan Pierre, who hit one home run uh, as a center fielder, would he even get a sniff now? So the game has completely changed. Final one, full disclosure, big Yankee fan. So your 2000 <laughs> Mets teams, you know, you guys had that flair. You guys were coming in hot. And I respected the hell out of you for it because you guys had a lot of swagger on those teams. I still say to this day, Paul, you were the best team in 06. And if El Duque doesn't get hurt, 
right before the division series. I think you guys win it all. And I know you could have won that Cardinal series, and I know it could have gone either way, but losing El Duque and what he brought in the postseason, he pitches, dude, I think you're a world champion. Uh, yeah, I think there's two things, and I'll end it at this. Uh, if Duana Sanchez doesn't get in that cab, too, Forgot about I mean, that, yes, at the end of July. Yeah, Good point. Yeah, um, he. you could argue he was better than Billy at the time, and, and Billy and him were just knocked down eighth and ninth the game was over and we were usually scoring eight nine runs he got in that cab and it was unfortunate i remember a lot of us were upset we thought he was out too late and it wasn't he ended up being in a cab cab got t-boned by a drunk driver wrong and place wrong situation. time basically R- wrong right, place, yeah. wrong time. and it ended his career we had to trade xavier nady and xavier nady was our guy that could kill left-handed pitching and we had to trade xavier nady away to come and get roberto hernandez and then guillermo moda stepped in and I love Guillermo, but we lost that series in game two when we had that game one and then Spezio. Ah, uh, Taguchi. So, so, so yeah, Taguchi. So yep. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when Dwaner got in that cab, I mean, listen, I'm not making any excuses because after Andy made that catch, we had the bases loaded and nobody out. We couldn't score. And I think it was a double, double mo reverse and, and Yadier hit the home run. But um, yeah, that 2006 team still gives me nightmares. But by far, I'll put that team up against any other team offensively in the last 30 years. Thanks so much for doing this. And the next time I'm up at Saratoga, it'll be my first. So I hope I can find you. And I love to gamble, Paul. NFL, (laughs) college football, golf. I bet on anything. Baseball. I got to learn the tools of the trade with horse racing. So you give me like a 10-minute crash course, and I think I'll be ready to rock, okay? Anytime, bro. Bears are on me, and we'll have a good old time. I like it. Bears, couple winning bets, and away we go. That's Paul Waduka. Thanks, Paulie. Thanks, JJ. Appreciate it, bro. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Good stuff there with our buddy, Paul Duca. And I, I appreciate guys who play with passion. I appreciate guys who get after it. And Duke now getting after more ways than one. After a playing career, now he's this horse racing savant extraordinaire. So got to ride a wrong. Got to get to Saratoga for the first time. Can't believe I've never been to Saratoga. All these years. Never been. So Waduka provides the horse racing analysis. I bring the beverages and away we go. Now, I got to say before we get to voicemails, I did MLB Network today. Did the MLB betting show. I've been doing it all year. I've had a ton of fun. I've had really good success, to be honest. With you. I feel like the games I've picked on the MLB Network show have probably hit at like 55, 60%, but a lot of it's been digital. So today I'm all excited. It's on the network. I'm like, great. We're on the network. Everybody's going to watch. Analysis. All that good stuff. I give out the Yankee roll line. Loser. I give out the Tigers. Loser. I give out the Braves. Now listen. The Tigers is a dog. The Braves is a major dog. At least I'm giving you some roll of the dice picks. I'm not coming on and giving you chalky favorites, which is no fun and is totally boring. Braves had a one-run lead. Let it slip away, and the Dodgers win yet another game. I mean, the Dodgers and the Giants this weekend is going to be electric. That is going to be a great baseball weekend. And, you know, the Braves making me look stupid. Thanks. You know, I'm on MLB Network. I'd I'd like to get a couple of these right. 
You guys will get it right with the voicemails. I never worry about that. 917-382-1151. Let's get them going with a bang. What do we got? Hey, JJ, Sean from Long Island. Thanks for taking the call. First off, man, I'm a school teacher. Uh, first day tomorrow. I'm sure there's a lot of students and teachers listening to the pod. Best of luck to everyone out there. Stay safe. All the best in this new year. Uh, now, JJ, the best. Just watch them sweep the Marlins, which, you know, won't get them any gold medals in my book, but it would just be so mess, I think, to have this Baez, Lindor versus the fans thing be something that weirdly sparks the September craze. Uh, I'm not getting too caught up in it yet, but uh, it would just be so messy and to have turn on the players, have the owner turn on the players, and then just have this really wild, you know, run um, that probably ends a terrible heartbreak. But, you know, all credit to the schedule makers. You know, I look at the games back for the Braves, and you know what? No matter what the number is, due to that last weekend in October, three against the Braves. So, hey, let's just stay within three, baby, and have a uh, end-of-the-season sweep. How does that sound, JJ? Let me know. Take care. Well, I still think you're asking for a lot, Shawnee. And I'm glad that you realize that you're asking for a lot. But the Marlins and the Nationals a ton over the next two weeks, including a doubleheader on Tuesday couple more doubleheaders down the road, that gives you that fantasy of maybe, just maybe, my team can get back into this race in this division. It is a weird dynamic. The fans were basically revolting on Monday morning, and rightfully so. Now you got players apologizing, and now you win a couple of games. What this Tuesday win, down four in the ninth inning means a week from now, two weeks from now, three weeks from now, it's still to be determined. Ask me that. You can't ask me right now and think I have the answer. I'm not going to be a fortune teller and tell you that this is the turning point of the year. I need to see a little bit more. I, I'm, I, for me, at least, I'm not willing to go that far. Who's next? Hey, JJ. It's John from Virginia here. I got two big fears for the upcoming NFL season. First fear is the Giants, they're just not that good and their quarterback I think everybody will finally get on board with the fact that he's not going to lead them anywhere however their head coach is so good he's not going to let them tank he's not going to let them fold so they're going to finish middle of the pack not get the top draft pick they need to get the quarterback they so desperately need second fear is Mac Jones will have a pretty good season and we'll have to hear endlessly from all the fucking loser, you know, Patriots fans about, oh, they're playing 4D chess and drafting him and they're, they're light years ahead of everyone else. And he's, he's the next Brady and Belichick, blah, 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 blah. You get it. Anyway, hope these things don't pan out, but I just have a sneaking suspicion that they will. Interesting phone call. I'm going to start first with the Patriot angle on this. When the Patriots have Bill Belichick hanging around, they're always going to be dangerous. No matter who their quarterback may be, you're always going to have this fear. Oh, geez, here they go again. It's not the same without Tom Brady. And now remember, Tom Brady has a leg up on Belichick from this standpoint. As they move forward, Tom knows, hey, guess what? I won already. Now, Belichick's got to prove, hey, I can win without Brady. And I guarantee you that is fueling him. That is fueling him to no end. Getting that Don Shula record and trying to win one without CB12 is the number one priority for this head coach, who, for my money, is the best to ever do it, and it's not even close. In my lifetime, I'm never going to see anybody as good as Bill Belichick. 
The Mac Jones, Tom Brady comparison. Let's let's put the Jets on. Mac Jones came out of nowhere, got an opportunity to play at Bama last year with a ton of talent and played well. He will not be throwing to nearly as prolific a group of playmakers. He's got a couple of good tight ends. He's got a versatile running back. The receivers in New England stink. I mean, Nelson Aguilar, I'm supposed to go nuts over Nelson Aguilar. I think Jones will be solid. I do not think he will be spectacular, at least right out of the gate. As far as the Giants, I wouldn't look at that catch-22 scenario as a bad thing. I like the fact that the Giants are going to compete for this head coach. And I agree with you on that. I think Joe Judge has the right mindset, has the right mentality. He's a badass. The Giants were lethargic and lifeless and boring over the last few years. He came in and basically kept them in every single game with not a whole lot of talent on the roster. I applaud his first year. I'm skeptical on this quarterback. This quarterback's got a lot to prove. But with the way the Giants have set this up, whether it was on purpose or not is besides the point. In making that trade with Chicago, they got draft collateral next year. If they got to go move up and get a quarterback, they're going to be able to do it. Or they could be in the position of whoever the disgruntled star quarterback may be. Is it Aaron Rodgers? Is it if his legal trouble is straightened down, he doesn't get traded to Sean Watson? Who knows? You could put yourself in those conversations. So I wouldn't necessarily worry about that. This year is about Daniel Jones. You want this team to compete. You want this team to win. I understand that fear about the middle of the pack. Six and 11, seven and 10, it's not a great place to be. The look and feel of Jones, though, is everything. He's got to, got to take that next step. Or the Giants are just not going to be moving in the direction they need to be moving in. Because in this league, folks, quarterback play, 90 to 95% of the time is just about everything. It's quarterback play and coaching. I think the Giants have a coach. I don't know if they have a quarterback. Final one before we have some fun with some trivia. What do we got? What's going on, JJ? This is Pete in Westchester, man. It's been a minute since I've called. I hope you've had a great summer. Um, but I'm just calling you fresh on the heels of this Giants offensive line performance from last night, this Monday today. Um, Andrew Thomas, man. I mean, what the fuck? I mean, he's getting worked all night. Um, you know, what... Is it with this team? How is it? What is this? The fifth, sixth, seventh year we've been talking about how much the Giants' offensive line sucks. It's you know, Gettleman comes in here. Oh yeah, you know we need hog mollies. We need to win at the point of attack. And you know, you've seen, you just haven't seen that happen. And it's not for lack of trying. I mean, Andrew Thomas was supposed to be the one surefire thing. Well, he was supposed to be or considered the safest tackle pick of those of that huge stacked group now. And but he's the worst. So I love the pick at the time, but it just seems like this team's got no luck building talent on the line. Shane Lemieux hurt, you know, guy who flashed in his first year at guard. Now we're looking for, you know, guard help. We just brought in this Billy Price kid. You know, dude, it's just, it's so aggravating to be talking about this again. We can't just focus on Daniel Jones being the guy or not being the guy. You got to constantly worry about his blind side with Thomas looking like complete dog shit in his first real preseason action. All right, man, that's it for me. Hope to talk to you soon. Thanks. Yeah, it was an alarming performance from the giant offensive line against New England. Final game of the preseason. And Andrew Thomas was a part of a draft class in which you had offensive tackle after offensive tackle. And what I heard about Thomas 
from any of the draft experts that I had on the show back when I was doing radio is that he was the safest, most secure guy that you were going to get on the offensive line. Maybe didn't have the boomer bust potential, but you had a 10-year starter written all over him. He had a very up-and-down rookie year. Now, I heard some good things about Andrew Thomas when they were scrimmaging the Browns and they're doing those joint practices and whatnot. He got worked in this game against the Patriots. And I will say this. If the giant offensive line is going to perform the way that it did against New England over the course of this year, it's going to be a long season. It's going to be a very, very long season. The Giants, in this Gettleman regime, they've tried to upgrade the line. Can't say they haven't. They signed Nate Solder. Massive contract. They drafted Andrew Thomas. They traded for Kevin Zeitler. Now, I know he is now a Baltimore Raven, but they traded for Kevin Zeitler. They drafted Will Hernandez. They drafted Pert. They have drafted a ton of dudes on the line. You're not getting it right. Who's taking the fall for that? Who's taking the onus for that? It's none other than everybody's favorite general manager, who it amazes me, by the way. It amazes me how many apologists there are for Dave Gettleman since he's taken over this team. Like, I've been roasting him since day one. It's not personal. It's strictly business. But, like, there is a contingent of Giant fans that, like, blindly defend some of the moves that have been made in his tenure. That It blows my mind. And he hit on a couple of free agents. I have to be fair. Bradbury ended up being a terrific pickup. Tip cap. Blake Martinez ended up being a really good signing. Tip cap. The Williams trade, which I thought was outrageous, ended up working out. Now we'll see how Leonard Williams performs. Now that he got the bag of money. Now that he got the loot, are you going to get the same sort of performance and effort? Let's see. So I'll give Gettleman credit on the hits, but I think the misses have been gigantic from taking a running back at two when you were nowhere close to building a title team to his failures on the offensive line. He failed in hiring Pat Shermer and in trying to find a successor to Eli Manning. Are you sold that Daniel Jones, the quarterback for this team for the next decade? Well, I better start getting some answers right out of the gate. And it won't be easy for Jones. Think about these first two games. And think about these first two pass rushes. Denver, a Vic Fangio team, Chubb, Von Miller, not pleasant. And then you got Washington and their cavalcade of pass rushers and Ron Rivera and what he's bringing to the table. And the guy you could have had a couple of years ago in Chase Young, maybe chasing down your quarterback. Giant offensive line is going to be tested right out of the gate. And it had better be better than what we saw on Sunday. Trivia time. A little trivia Q&A with JJ. I am coming off a very good performance last week. Maybe it was the desert air in Las Vegas. Maybe it was just my good vibes after a Yankee winning streak. Well, the Yankee winning streak is now turned into a losing streak. I do not want my trivia performance to turn into a losing streak. So the floor is yours, Trivia Nation. Trivia Q&A. JJ time. What do we got? JJ Larry in Florida. I got two questions for you tonight. Nicky hit his 500th home run, the 28th guy to hit 500 or more. Who was the the, the the guy before him to enter the 500 home run club? 
The second one, who's the last guy to pitch a perfect game? I'm out. Those are a couple of doozies. The last guy to pitch a perfect game, and I'm going back to the 500 home run club. Usually gauge my confidence right out of the gate when I hear these. I'm not overly confident on either. But when we come back, we'll try to figure out some answers. That's coming up next. All right, Larry. Two toughies. I think Larry was a little embarrassed that I got his Harmon Killebrew question last week. So he really wanted to stump me. So the last guy to reach the 500 home run club before Miguel Cabrera. See, you think about guys now and you think about 500 home runs. Few and far between because of all the injuries and all the issues and all the problems. Just so many guys now missing time, not playing as many games. Those milestones are going to be tougher and tougher to achieve and attain. I mean, you can forget about 300 wins as a pitcher. You're never going to see that ever again. I am going to say the last guy to join the 500 home run club. Last guy to do it. Before Miguel Cabrera. Oh, boy. I am not confident at all in this answer, but I got to throw something out there. People are counting on me, and therefore I can't suck. I'm going to say it was Albert Pujols, gentlemen. See, this is why it's a tricky question. Um, he is uh, Pujols is obviously still active. He was the guy before. He did a year before the guy who is second on this list. So the guy who who the correct answer is is actually retired. Oh, okay. Okay. So I'll, I'll give you this too. Albert Pujols, he hit his 500th home run in 2014. This guy hit his in 2015. But again, Pujols still active. This guy is retired. 2015 hit his five. I got it. I got it. I got it. Is it Big Poppy David Ortiz? Well done, sir. I knew it was somebody with power in their their brains and power oozing out of them. I forgot Big Poppy got to 500 home runs, and it's going to annoy me to no end when Big Poppy ends up in the Hall of Fame, considering he used steroids just like Bonds, just like Clemens. But because his act was, you know, the nice guy act, he ends up getting into the Hall of Fame. So neither here nor there, which is hypocrisy at its finest. Like, I'm going to see Bonds and Clemens out, and yet I'm going to see Big Poppy in. Give me a break on that. So I'm proud that I ended up getting that one right. Took me two guesses, but that was a toughie. Very, very tough question. The last guy to pitch a perfect game. It's been a while. That's what I'm guessing because there have been so many no hitters. Perfect game takes it to another level. I'm going to take a stab here and I am Definitely going to need a hint here from Saruti. I'm just telling you right out of the gate. But I'm going to take my first guess without one. I am going to say the last pitcher to throw a perfect game. Is it Justin Verlander? Mm. No. He threw a bunch of no-hitters. I should have known that he ended up walking somebody. All right. So here's what I want you to do, Saruti. Tell me the year this particular pitcher threw a perfect game. That's what I want to know. This is actually a fascinating stat. Uh, it was 2012. Okay. And he was one of three pitchers in 2012 
to pitch a perfect game. Well, but he it's was, funny. He was the last I think, one to do it. See, I know one of them, and I'm throwing this guess out there because I remember watching this on an airplane. Philip Umber threw a perfect game in 2012. He's not the last guy to do it. I know that for a fact. So you could give me the buzz. He yep. got it was Philip Umber. No, no, no. Well, he was he he that you are correct that he did throw a perfect. Oh, game you just want to give me a little walk. Yeah. All I'm right. Trying to so give you're some, acknowledging some since I threw that little disclaimer out there for the audience. You just want to no. make me sound good. No, I, so I, the, I appreciate that. So he was the first of three guys to throw a perfect game that year, which is insane. 2012, first of three to throw a perfect game. And I remember the number one because the Yankees were down like nine runs against the Red Sox. I'm on a flight. I had the direct TV in flight service. They came back, won that game. I had way too many cocktails on the flight, which I will never do again because you're basically going to the bathroom like every hour and a half, which is not pleasant on a West Coast flight. But I also do remember watching Philip Humber throw a perfect game on that flight. And the Rangers ended up losing, I think, to the Ottawa Senators in the first round of the postseason. So my memory works in some weird and some wacky ways. But I am blanking on this particular pitcher. So I'm going to ask for another hint, Sarudi. Is it an American League or a National League pitcher? American League pitcher. American League pitcher. Perfect game. He did it against the Rays. 2012. one nothing win. I should know this. Against Tampa, one nothing win. Oh, boy. This is, this is a great, great question. Is he a household name or no? Yeah, he's a household name. Household. Uh, he's, won a, he's won a Cy Young. Um, kind of had a, a less than stellar end to his career, but uh, was a was a beast back in the day. Household name, less than stellar career. West Coast guy. West Coast guy. West Coast guy. Oh, man. Uh, I'm annoyed I haven't gotten this. Hold on here. It's not Dallas Braden. That was against... No, no, no. no. It's not Dallas. Don't. That's not a guess. It's not Dallas. It's not Dallas Braden. I know. I know. I know. Uh, it's not Dallas Braden. He won a Cy Young two years before in 2010 uh, with a record of 13 and 12. Oh, I got it. That would be the king, Felix Hernandez. That is correct. There we go. Tough one. You know what, though? Once I started thinking a little bit, and once I got the wheels in motion, I was able to remember that Felix Hernandez ended up throwing a perfect game. And you want to talk about someone that is going to have a very compelling case for the Hall of Fame. Felix Hernandez is going to have a very compelling case for the Hall of Fame. And I reward dominance over a bunch of good years in a row. That guy for about a seven-year period was as good as anybody. He's a Hall of Famer in my book. But that's a conversation maybe we will have once he's on the Hall of Fame ballot. So one trivia question down, one to go. All right, let's have a little bit better luck with these because the first two that Larry gave me were absolutely brutal. Just saying, brutal. What up, J.J. Charlene Elmhurst. Uh, won't be able to talk Yankee baseball uh, for the next couple of days because I'm going to be uh, due to my occupation busyness. So I would like to participate in your trivia. J.J. Kuhne, uh John Krasinski, whatever that is. But here it is, movie trivia. And this is within your wheelhouse, so this is a layup for you. I'll give you a layup for you. This is the movie trivia. What is the name of the street where Captain Queenan was killed and the whole, like, end of the brutal end of the scene, end of the party? What is the name of the street? 
Plus, bonus points if you can name the wrong address that Timothy Delahan tells to Billy, tells to Billy in this conversation. It was like when he said, Hey, Billy, Billy, we're trying to reach you. Where the fuck you been? We're trying to reach you. Found the rest. And on and on. The address is that, 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 that. He gave out the wrong address. What is that name of the address? So, so that's my, that's what it is. So, can't get it? I hope you get it. Thanks, JJ. This is a terrific plot twist from my buddy Charlie in Elmhurst, Woodside, wherever he's living these days. What I vividly remember about that scene, and I hope I'm not spoiling the departed for anybody. DiCaprio correcting the guy when he's writing out citizens. Do you guys remember that? I think one of the more iconic scenes in the movie. And then later in the movie, when DiCaprio gets on the phone and he calls Damon, we're queen and died. The street, though. I don't remember the street. I This is, this is a very, very tough one. I, I, I am going to guess, and I'm not a Boston geographical savant. Surely, I'm taking one guess on this because honestly, we could sit here for 10 hours with me trying to figure this out. <laughs> I'm going to say M Street, but I don't feel good about it. Mm. Yeah, I didn't think so. I'm cutting to chase right now. I, I, There's no way in the world I'm going to get this. So please, please elaborate. Well, do, would you want to take a stab at the other one, the, the wrong address, too? Do either one? No, because have- I, I don't think I'm going to get it. No, absolutely not. I don't think I'm getting the right address. I don't think I'm getting the street. As much as I love the movie, I'm not going to remember this off the top of my head. No chance. Well, the the street address was 344 Washington Street, and I believe he said 314 Washington Street. Uh, and the street itself that Queenan was killed on was K Street. I knew it was a letter. I was close. I gave out M Street. It was K Street. I, I actually am going to give myself a little bit of credit for that. Not terrible. I never in a million years would have remembered Washington Street. And this is coming from somebody who has seen The Departed probably over 500 times in his life. But like certain streets, like eh, you don't remember them as much. You just don't. I remember lines in a movie. She's on the way out. We all are. Act accordingly. In fact, funny story. I was on Monday night out to dinner at in Las Vegas. I was with a couple of buddies of mine, the great James Alberino, spread investor, Sam Panionovich over at Nesson. And uh, my buddy won a bunch of money at the win poker tournament. Syracuse guy. And he may have ordered a cranberry juice at dinner. And of course, me being the departed guy I am, I had to ask him, is he period? Because you've seen the movie, you know exactly where I'm going. It's a natural diuretic. So I turned around and I go, what is it, period? You ordered cranberry juice. I said, you got to go with a grapefruit juice at that point. If you're looking to get the blood sugar up, you might as well go with the, uh, the grapefruit. It's a better juice, for being fair. All right. I whiffed on trivia. I, not as good as last week. It actually was not a terrible performance. It was a adequate performance. Coming up next, the guy doesn't give any adequate performances. He's got a new gig. He's all fired up about that. And we'll preview the NFL season from a wagering standpoint. Jared Smith, picks wise, up next. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. Cold slurpy drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven and your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small slurpy drink with seven rewards. It's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that I'm gonna be going forward anytime 
there's a drink like this. I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now, how about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax, participating U.S. stores. See app for full terms. All rights reserved. So big news in the NFL, Cam Newton cut. Mac Jones, a battle of Bama quarterbacks. Jastrzemski's boys, Simmons' boys, the Dolphins and the Patriots. I think it's the most appealing matchup of week one, but I understand I'm biased. Full disclosure, a little bit of bias kicking in. Now, I'm so happy for a guy we're going to welcome in. He's been a longtime contributor of mine for the last couple of years. He is starting a new gig. I've known this now for a couple of weeks, but now that the cat is out of the bag, we can make it official over at PixWise. He's got a ton of new stuff, all sorts of great, great gambling insight coming your way. And he'll be on this podcast a ton. My main man, Smitty, Jared Smith. What's up, Jared? Congrats, buddy. Oh, JJ, it's been a long summer. It, you know, as you know, when you transition to new things, a lot of stress, a lot of excitement, a lot of stress. Now we're finally getting into the meat of the season. No more time for stressing out about gigs. We got bets and sweats to sweat out. Because the NFL season is upon us. Best time of the year. Football is back. Well, I was going to say, you got to get acclimated quickly because <laughs> yeah. basically you're starting this new gig and you're hitting the ground running. So I'm going to hit you right out of the gate. Big news in the NFL with Cam out, Mac Jones in. He obviously had an impressive training camp. It makes sense for New England to start a quarterback who is a first-round pick, get that rookie wage scale going, see what you have to work with, and then you go from there. As far as the... Outlook for the Pats in week one against Miami and the outlook for the Pats as a whole throughout the season. Does it change for the better? Does it change for the worse? Is it status quo with this quarterback news? You know, I asked a bunch of bookmakers about it, you know, because this was sudden. And I think the, the, the sudden part about it was not that, you know, Jones won the job, but that Cam was completely gone and not them wanting to keep Cam at least to mentor or tutor uh, Jones in some capacity because Cam is still a veteran. But in terms of the market, it, it did move them slightly down a little bit. The division odds moved slightly, you know, a few cents, you know, down. Same thing with the Super Bowl. And I think long term, the Patriots' chances of having a lot of success this season are probably slightly lower with Mac Jones just because of the uncertainty there. But that being said, JJ, that does present an opportunity because if Matt Jones performs above what maybe some of the people think in his rookie season early on when the growing pains can happen, then you're getting a really good buy low number with New England. Well, as far as rookie of the year odds, I feel like you missed the boat on yeah, that because you could have gotten a juicier, juicier yeah. number 48, 72 hours ago when we weren't sure it was going to be a week one starter. But with the odds being what they are, would you invest in Mac Jones, offensive rookie of the year? No, because again, the volatility, I think at some point you're going to get a chance to buy lower than what it is today. And you saw the sports books very aggressive. I talked to the ones out in Vegas. They moved it down to almost three, four to one. You can still get five to one, you know, here on the East Coast if, if, you know, you really shop around. But again, that was 10, 12, 13 to one 24 hours prior. And I think the one lesson that I've learned in, in these big news making events that move the market, you wait for the dust to settle and there's always a little bit of drawback. And at some point, there's going to be a clunker for Mac Jones. That would be the time I would recommend to buy in. Now, that being said, too, there's some other market moving events that could happen, like Justin Fields, you know, getting ascended to the starting quarterback role, which could change the market as well. But it is an interesting dynamic when the, the market gets moved so fast because of one piece of news. Let's get to some win totals. I'm going to start locally. 
and then we can have some fun with some of your favorites and we'll take it from there. Um, the division in the NFC East. Cowboys, Washington, Giants, Eagles. That's the way the division odds shake out. I'd argue Washington is the most well-rounded team within the division. Do you think the giant number is where it should be? Are you bullish or are you skittish when it comes to their chances of being a playoff team and a contender in 2021? I'm, I'm scared for the NFC East. This is the, I think the NFC East is probably the toughest division to handicap because, I, I, I mean, I think Philly is the fourth place team. But, I, I but think you know you what can... that division, Jared, as bad yeah. as Philly may look going into the yeah. air, how many times do we see the fourth place team in that division odds wise? <laughs> find a way to win the division. I feel like that 100%. insanity happens all the time. And, and I, so then I think based on that, there's one team that I'm definitely not betting on and that's the favorite and that's the Cowboys. And, and again, I think when you go into a season with the question marks that you have in that division at the quarterback position, it makes it a very tough division to cap. I would argue that's probably the most question marks. Dak Prescott, is he healthy? Fitzpatrick, can he be consistent? Daniel Jones, can he can he keep the ball away from the other team? And obviously the Eagles quarterback situation, you don't even know who's going to be the starter there uh, if they do, in fact, make a move for somebody else. You know, Gardner Minshew probably is going to be the starter. Could be Jalen Hurts. We don't even know. So it's really hard to handicap that division. I, I would say the Giants, if Daniel Jones stays healthy, if Galladay stays healthy, big if, they have a chance to have a really dynamic offense, which I think is something that the other teams in that division don't necessarily have, especially Washington, which, you know, you would think that defense will be able to keep people in check. But I think the Giants, there is some upside, but health is so paramount with that team. Okay, my friend, now we get to the Jets. They're going to finish in dead last in this division unless something <laughs> crazy happens. I mean, you never know, but odds are you're going to have the Jets behind Miami. You're going to have the Jets behind New England. And of course, you're going to have the Jets behind the Buffalo Bills. But when it comes to their win total, and it seems a little high when you look at it because you're like, hold on a second, where are the wins coming from within the AFC East? But a new coach, new vibes, rookie quarterback. Would you dare get invested in a Jet overpriced for the year? I think if I had to pick one of the locals, I think they were the one that I would say a little more upside. And that's because, again, when you have a rookie quarterback like Wilson, there's unknowns and there's unknowns for the sports book as well. Obviously, they're very down on the Jets. They should be down on the Jets. But if Zach Wilson plays well and I like the revamped offense, I think there's upside growth for the Jets, whereas the Giants, I think, are kind of priced right. And again, if there's weakness in the rest of the division, say Tua or Jones gets off to slow starts and maybe there's a game to be had in the AFC East. You're right. The number, I, I think the number is probably a hair. Actually, I think it might be a hair low. But I, 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 I think if I had to pick one of the two locals to go over, I think it'd be the Jets. Because I do like the vibe uh, that Sal is preaching over there. Okay, we're talking about totals. Give me the team that is totally overvalued. The number makes no sense. You're all over going the other way. When you saw these win totals, this like just blew your mind. You're saying, how is this total as high as it is? Is there one you're looking at? I, I mean, I, I've been selling New Orleans for the last two years. I've been wrong on them for two years in a row. And I, I'm willing to be wrong on them a third year in a row. I'm ready to double down with you. And it's yeah. funny. I heard the great Mike Francesa, our pal, on with Bill Simmons when I was on vacation. And basically, I heard the two of them basically waxing poetic about the idea that the Saints, you know, they had a breeze problem and that Jameis Winston is going to come in and solve a whole lot of issues. I don't see it. I think no. they're way too top-heavy a roster. I think Winston is a turnover machine. Michael Thomas... Good luck getting him on the field at any point this year. And I think Atlanta and Carolina could be improved teams. I, I don't see New Orleans as a 10-11 win team this no year. Smitty, I'm sorry. I don't buy it. 
Carolina's good. I, I think Carolina's better See, it's than funny you think. like Carolina. Yeah. Atlanta, to me, is the team in that division they're, that they I kind of have too. circled. Because I they think be they're going to be better with the new coach. Yeah. I think Pitts is going to be an absolute beast. And I think law averages. They lost so many games last year that they easily <laughs> could have won. Don't you get the sense that Atlanta's going to get it back on the other end, maybe with a couple of coaching decisions that go the right way? Yeah, and and I I definitely will say this. I, I think if there's weakness in one team in that division where there's usually a strength, and that's New Orleans, who's been a typical you know stalwart in that division, that opens up the door for value for those other two teams behind them because the book is pricing New Orleans as the second best team in that division. I do think Tampa's really good, but the question with Tampa is what's the motivation early? Motivation, right? Yeah, Remember 100%. last year they didn't win the division. They're, See, I that's why I'm not going anywhere near number. their win total this year, Smitty. Listen, I think I if they get in the playoffs, it's Brady, it's that defense. They're as good as anybody. They absolutely can win yep. a Super Bowl again. From a win total standpoint, no. I'm staying away from Tampa and I'm staying away from Kansas City. Those are two win 100%. totals I will not go near this year. Yeah, and I'll be honest, I I I hate to say it, but I, Buffalo only has one direction to go as well. How good was Buffalo last year? Now again, everything went look- right for them. And you know everything what bothers right. me, Smitty? Listen, I think they're really good. Yeah, of I think they're a Super Bowl contender. But you listen to people throughout the offseason. Doesn't it seem like everybody and their mother is hopping on the Buffalo bandwagon going yeah. into the year? And that's why, like, you look at their win total. I think it's at 11 and a half right now. It seems too, too easy, right? It seems way too easy. I don't think it's going to be as easy as people no, think. I don't. And I, I think there's a couple of other teams that, you know, because there's some buzz on a Buffalo. I, I think Cleveland's a little under the radar this year. I like Cleveland a lot. I like Cleveland a lot. I like them a lot. And I think the division number tells you everything you need to know that it's almost a pick them on both sides between them and Baltimore. I think it's a 30 or 40 cent difference. And if you were going to ask me that preseason, I think last year they were three or four to one preseason to win the division. So that's a big jump. And I think the sports books understand that there's a lot of talent in Cleveland. And that's a team that because of some of the other hot spots that are getting some buzz, Cleveland's flying, unlike previous years, a little under the radar. AFC North, who do you think is more bound for regression? Baltimore, Pittsburgh. Baltimore's got some injuries early. This Dobbins injury is a problem for them. Because I'm sorry, listen, I disregard running backs. Edwards is not Dobbins. And the kid they drafted from Minnesota, Bateman's hurt too, and that's supposed to be their big wideout move. So Baltimore's got now, they did shore up the O-line, and Jackson, I think, now that's another thing too, is Jackson going to take another leap? Because I think we all agree that Lamar Jackson needs to be better if the Ravens want to win a Super Bowl. He can't play the way he had the last three years, especially in the playoffs. I'm not going to fight you on that. I'm concerned about the Steelers, though, from a standpoint of the offensive line, the quarterback, I think, is basically on the 17th to the 18th hole of his career. It's a, <laughs> it's a question of when, not if, Ben Roethlisberger is going to hang him up. And that's why I'm so tempted, Smitty, to get on board with the Bengals. But I just see that. Te- Here's the issue with that team. It's Burrow. It's a terrible offensive line. It's a terrible defense. They'll be spunky. They'll be in games. I just, I can't do it. I wanted to do it, bro. I can't do it. I can't do it. I hope it's not like our 18th a couple weeks ago over at South Shore for Big Ben. That would be bad for them, right? Uh, No, listen, the the, the Bengals, I think, have a, a ton of upside. But again, injury concerns with the quarterback. Like it's tough for me to buy into a team. And this is a, this is something I preached to myself in the summer. I had a lot of solitude this summer to think about this. I will, I want to be as nimble as possible with these handicaps for as long as possible, where I'm only willing to really buy in in the futures market preseason on teams that I feel like have either established situations or 
the opposite, like a Texans where I know that they're going to stink and I can go under, you know, to, to me, the, the ones that are in the middle of Burrow with Dak Prescott, how are they going to look? And I'm willing to pay for a week or two of information before I dive in on a team in the futures market that has some questions, especially injury questions at quarterback. As we are now a week plus out from week one, biggest piece of advice you give the betters out there and trying to handicap a card when you haven't really seen game action, you're basically basing your knowledge and your facts on the offseason and what you saw last year. I know last year I got my clock clean first week of the year, Jared, <laughs> so I might have got a little too cute with some of these numbers and with some of these lines. But for the betters out there that are trying to figure out a winning strategy, what would yours be? Know what you don't know. Going into every week, when you look at the card, if there is a lot in a game that you're like, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, it's okay to pass. I think the more we pass early, the more confident we get in our handicap. Now, I'd say don't pass on everything. There's always a spot that you feel best about. The hardest thing to do is to identify the spot that you're like, all right, the rest of it is kind of noise but this edge really matters. Early in the season, it's very tough. Trust the line movements. The sharps tend to be right earlier than they are late when the lines are a little bit softer. So if something moves through one of those key numbers, give that obviously a a big hard look. But I think it's okay to be a little bit more patient earlier in the NFL season. I know you've got the FOMO and everyone wants to get back to work, but I think week one of the NFL is one of the toughest dark throws maybe in any opening week for any sport. Okay, my friend, I'm going to give you a favorite season total over under a favorite future thinking down the road the floor is yours Mm. new york new york awaits (laughs) season win total future on any of these teams and if you got a fun prop that we want to have some fun with you could throw that in there i I have three i've got all i've got all three three. i figured you had me covered it's the old turkey and bowling win total 49ers over 10 and a half wow we have this is either a really good thing or a really bad (laughs) thing dude we have a we have a very similar card on we a lot of these We usually do. Teams. We think alike. We've been but doing this good. a long time. I like that, though. I like that. So, easiest schedule so in the So does Rudy, by the way, who's a big Niner fan. So Rudy definitely Love either that. is really happy to hear that or thinks <laughs> that me and you are basically putting the kibosh on the Niners this year. So Decent chance, but, but, but here's why I think this is a win total. And I, this is the only win total that I played in the NFL this year because I am very convinced that they're going to be 2-0. And I can't say that about a lot of teams for an over. Lions and Eagles in the first two weeks. So I feel very confident that they're going to start the season fast, which gets us off to a good start. Again, easiest schedule in the NFL based on win totals. And Jimmy G, from what we hear, is healthy. Niners, Kyle Shanahan specifically, 24-9 and with Jimmy G, 7-27 and without. I like what they did in the offseason. They added Alex Mack, shoring up the offensive line. They drafted two guards. I think their skill position is the deepest, you know, maybe unit in all of football. Ayuk, Debo, Kittle, hopefully back healthy. And Nick Bosa back at defensive end is absolutely huge. That's going to be a big boost for the defense. They've got to stay healthy. Jimmy G's got to stay healthy. But I think the Niners 10 and a half wins over is a, is a really good play. All right. We're in on the Niners. Future. Where are you going there? What is the future down the road that has... You circling, you know, like sharks basically in the Atlantic waiting to catch their prey. There's got to be a future that you've been all over for a while. There was. And uh, the numbers, it's moved a little bit to the point where I would consider playing it for less, but I would still play the Titans to win the South. Anything up to minus 130. Um, I just don't see the Colts. Now, granted, we've gotten very fortunate with other injury news since I made this bet with the Colts. But it was originally, I fired away right when I heard about Carson Wentz's foot. And then all the other things happened with, 
with, you know, the offensive lineman getting hurt, Nelson, and now the left tackle. And, and, and they're, they're having a lot of issues in Indy. The rest of the division, obviously. Well, and you can rule out Jacksonville and Houston. 100%. That's the thing. Absolutely. Like, to me, one of two teams are going to win the yep. AFC South. I agree. I think Tennessee is the play. I would fire on Tennessee with the Wentz uncertainty and the Nelson uncertainty. The only thing that scares me with that, Jared, I think Frank Reich is one of the best coaches in the league. I agree. And, and I've and seen he's, him he's do have more to be this with year. the last with quarterbacks. So I'm a little fearful that he could keep the Colts in it early in the year and they go on a surge in the second half. That's I've seen it with fair. that team. I, I will say this, though. The, the the beauty of these bets when you don't have to – now, you might have to lay a little bit of juice now. But when I got it at plus 110 – I felt like there's going to be a point where the Titans are going to be favored in a lot of these games down the stretch. And if I have to come off of it, similar to the 49ers bet, I know that I can come off of it on the other side. The Niners are going to be favored late in the year. I expect the Titans to be favored late in the year. And if I need to come off of it on the other side, I can. That goes into this kind of fluky prop that I like to play with the Texans having the worst record this year at almost three to one. Because again, if I need to fade that late in the year, they're going to be underdogs by probably 10 points or more in a lot of these games down the stretch. And if they, and if them winning ruins my bet, I'll get a plus money on their, on, on their, you know, money line down the stretch. So to me, it's a little strategy where if I'm playing the futures market, I feel like I'm giving myself some outs late in the year with some of these bets because I think the Titans are going to be favored and the Texans obviously are going to be underdogs. Smitty. Congratulations on a new gig, bro. Thank Very you. happy for you. Happy for your success. Well-deserved. And you'll be a major part of what we're doing here on this show throughout the football season, my friend. So I know a lot of long nights, a lot of long hours. But hey, it's football season, dude. Buckle up. It's well worth it. It ain't work to me, JJ. I appreciate it. a boy. That's the spirit. Listen, it's not for me either, except when <laughs> I'm trying to find a studio. Thankfully, my parents' house is obliged tonight. All right, Smitty, go get them. We'll talk next week, okay? Love you, bro. Good stuff from our guy, Jared Smith. And before we say goodbye, listen, I was thinking of this guy earlier today when I was having some fun with the folks over at MLB Picks, over at the MLB Network, thinking, as I'm submitting my card, what would our pal Jeff Money do? Well, I didn't get that option on Tuesday. I am getting that option for what is going to be a rain-soaked Wednesday in the tri-state area. Not much to do, unpacking boxes, maybe a little Peloton, and a couple of Jeff Money picks to either ride with or fade. Jeff Money, what do we got, baby? What up, JJ? Jeff Money here with a handicapper picks. This is going to be for Wednesday, September the 1st. I like two games. Money play. I'm going to go with the San Francisco Giants, minus the 140 over the Brewers. It'll be Gusman versus Anderson. Gus is 6-3 and three with a 3.38 ERA at home. And Anderson is 3-5 and five with a 5 ERA on their own. So game number one, money play. The Giants, minus the 140. Game number two, I'm going to take game number two of the Reds game. The Reds, minus the 150 over the Cardinals, it's going to be Miley versus Hap. Miley is 7-2 with a 2.40 ERA at home. Hap is 4-4 four four with a 6.36 ERA on the road. I'm going to take the Reds in game number two minus the 140. All right, JJ. Again, two plays. Money play, Giants minus the 140. Oh, it's the Reds minus, I'm sorry, minus the 150 in game number two. All right, JJ, I'm out of here. Let's go. Well, Money, appreciate it as always. Like the idea of getting on the San Francisco Giants. I'm on board with that. Kevin Gossman has thrown the ball so well this year. 12-5 with a two-and-a-half ERA. I'm in on the Giants, especially with the way that line is working. I'm staying away from Cincinnati because Cincinnati has gone in a tank a little bit over the last week. The Cardinals trying to keep wild card hopes alive. They always seem to hang around this time of the year. I mean... 
You'd be betting on your buddy and your pal, Jay Happ. I don't think anybody wants to go and bet the St. Louis Cardinals, but I'm going to stay away from the Reds player. I'm going to ride the Giant play with you. We are back Thursday night because we do not have late baseball. It will not be a Friday morning podcast. So Thursday evening, think 10, 11, right around there. We'll set the stage for the first weekend of college football. I got to finalize my season total bets. What a time to be alive. Think about it. I'm teasing this Thursday. Next Thursday, we'll be reacting to Cowboys and Buccaneers. And we'll have our first edition on New York, New York with the world famous JJ and Locks of the Week. What a time. What a time. What a time. Fellas, outstanding job. We'll chat Thursday. Be good, everybody. <laughs>